I want to start off with a little bit, um, something I talked about actually a couple of years ago on one of my other lifetimes on another show. And uh, as you know, I talk a lot about the U.S. Constitution, and I very often mention our right to keep and bear arms as protected by the Second Amendment. Not given to us by the Second Amendment, but protected by the Second Amendment. By the way, I want to remind you all, in case you have heard otherwise recently from certain absent-minded, feeble presidents, that the Second Amendment is absolute. Why? Because it's a right, not a privilege given by the government. Got me thinking about the tyranny inflicted by the British on the original colonists of this country and the events that led up to the Revolutionary War. Many people that don't have a good understanding of U.S. history may think that freedom was established in this country after the signing of the Declaration of Independence by the Continental Congress on July 4, 1776. This was, in fact, simply the date that 13 original North American British colonies declared their separation from Great Britain. The Declaration was actually the beginning of the Revolution. I want to ask you, do you think the protest at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th might have been the start of a new revolution? I'm sure the British saw the Boston Tea Party as an insurrection. I once heard someone at a conference I attended say that people often make declarations, but often don't back it up with action. In this case, actions were in fact taken by the colonists that were fed up with the tyranny, lack of representation, and unfair prosecutions they were receiving from the British Empire. Taxation without representation. It's a term you might be familiar with in which Britain instituted the Stamp Act. This measure required colonists to pay taxes on every page of printed paper they used. In today's world, that might be the equivalent of the government taxing you on every post you make on social media. I believe the censorship done by both directly and indirectly by the government is even worse than that. Protests began that were based on a legal principle that the colonial legislatures only had the power to tax residents who had representatives in those legislatures. And even though some colonies had official agents to parliament, like Benjamin Franklin, you might have heard of that guy, no colonies had sitting representatives in the British parliament. Opposition to the Stamp Act led to the Declaration of Rights and Grievances. Another resolution complained about admiralty courts conducting direct trials. It stated, trial by jury is the inherent and invaluable right of every British subject in these colonies. I'm thinking we might make a comparison of this to the January 6th political prisoners being held in a D.C. gulag for going on three years now without due process. The petitions were ignored when they arrived in Britain, but boycotts and financial pressure exerted by the colonists led to the Stamp Act's repeal the next year. Parliament then passed the Declaratory Act. 
which stated its right in principle to tax the colonies as it saw fit. At that point, momentum had begun within the colonies for more economic independence, and many wanted guarantees from the crown to protect colonist natural rights. Today, today I'm going to start the show by talking about a significant historical figure during the Revolution. I'm sure all of us that were actually taught American history in school have heard of Paul Revere. Most of us only know of him as the guy that rode a horse and warned the colonists by shouting the phrase, the British are coming, the British are coming, if he actually used those words. A lot of his story that people know is based on a poem of his famous April 1775 Midnight Ride by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow in 1861. This is how he became the folk hero we think of today. The first couple of verses of that famous poem go like this. Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere. On the 18th of April in 75, hardly a man is now alive. Who remembers that famous day and year? He said to his friend, if the British march by land or sea from the town tonight, hang a lantern aloft in the belfry arch of the North Church Tower as a signal light. One if by land and two if by sea, and I on the opposite shore will be, ready to ride and spread the alarm through every Middlesex village and farm for the country folk to be up and to arm. In reality, Paul Revere was an even more interesting character than most people realize. Paul Revere was a colonial Boston silversmith, industrialist, propagandist, patriot, and even did some dentistry on the side. Is that a diverse skill set or what? <laughs> he was born in Boston's North End in 1734 to a French Huguenot father who ran a silversmith shop and a mother from a local family. Now, you're probably wondering, what is a Huguenot? I didn't know what that was at first either. They were French Protestants in the 16th and 17th centuries who followed the teachings of theologian John Calvin, persecuted by the French Catholic government during a violent period, Huguenots fled the country in the 17th century and created Huguenot settlements all over Europe, in the United States, and in Africa. As a young man, Revere was educated in reading and writing in school before completing his training as an apprentice to his silversmith father. At age 19, Revere inherited the business upon his father's death, but left the business briefly and enlisted in a provincial army in 1756 during the French and Indian War. He married Sarah Orne in 1757, in which they had eight children together before he died on May 3, 1773, at age 37. Did I say he? I meant she, his wife. After the death of his wife, Sarah, he remarried Rachel Walker on, April, on October 10, 1773, and they had eight additional children. You know, I, I, I thought, well, that's kind of quick. Wow, he's, he's already on to 
another wife. Apparently, that was really common at the time for if if a, a guy became a widow, for uh, another woman to step up pretty quickly and uh, to help him with his family and his children. He had a lot of children, as you can see. <laughs> As you can imagine, Paul Revere was a rebel and helped create a network which included local activists angered by British rule. We have networks like that forming that have been forming over the past few years. In the mid-1760s, as tensions were rising between the colonists and the British, he joined the rebellious Sons of Liberty. I love that name. (laughs) Revere took part in the Stamp Act protests in 1765, which eventually led the Crown to repeal a tax that ignited the colonists' hatred of taxation without representation. Revere was also involved in planning the ever-famous Boston Tea Party. He was known as a master propagandist and even his artisan skills to craft engravings that incited the colonists to join in the rebellion. One of Revere's best-known pieces of propaganda depicted the violent night of the Boston Massacre. He reworked a Henry Pelham drawing and an engraving and widely distributed prints of the stark image of armed British troops taking aim at the colonists. You know, you might say, a lot of us are doing a similar thing now, only we're using social media as a medium to do these things in which ordinary people are out there with their camera phones and they're showing us what's really happening in the world and by the way i watch a lot of that stuff and get a lot of information by watching these things because you certainly don't learn a lot from mainstream news In 1774 through 1775, Revere was employed by the Boston Committee of Correspondence and the Massachusetts Committee of Safety as an express carrier to carry news, messages, and copies of important documents as far away as New York and Philadelphia. On the evening of April 18, 1775, Paul Revere was summoned by Dr. Joseph Warren of Boston and given the task of writing to Lexington, Massachusetts, with the news that regular troops were about to march into the countryside northwest of Boston. According to Warren, these troops planned to arrest Samuel Adams and John Hancock, who were staying at a house in Lexington, and probably continue on to the town of Concord to capture or destroy military stores of gunpowder, ammunition, and several cannon that had been stockpiled there. They were going after the guns. In fact, the British troops had no orders to arrest anyone. Dr. Warren's intelligence at this part uh, of this part was actually a little bit faulty. Revere contacted an unidentified friend and instructed him to show two lanterns in the Tower of Christ Church as a signal in case he was unable to leave town. The two lanterns meant that the British troops planned to row by sea across the Charles River to Cambridge rather than march by land out Boston Neck. He went to the waterfront where two friends rowed him across the river to Charleston, slipping past a British warship in the darkness After informing Colonel Conant and other local Sons of Liberty, he borrowed a horse from John Larkin, a Charleston merchant and a Patriot sympathizer. He set off at about 11 o'clock and rode through Medford, where he alarmed Isaac Hall, the captain of the local militia. Notice the context of the word militia. It wasn't a government-ran institution. These were Patriots. 
that were standing up for their country. He then alarmed almost all the houses from Medford through Menotomy, where carefully avoiding the royal mansion of a known loyalist, whose property he rode through and arrived in Lexington sometime after midnight. In Lexington, he met with Samuel Adams and John Hancock and gave them the news. About half past 12, William Dawes arrived carrying the same message. Notice a lot of people don't talk about William Dawes, but he actually rode and spread the news too. But it just wouldn't have sounded as good, the midnight ride of William Dawes. Doesn't quite have the same ring. After both men had something to eat and drink, they continued on to Concord, Massachusetts to verify that the military stores had been properly dispersed and hidden away. A short distance outside of Lexington, they were joined by Dr. Samuel Prescott, which was a fellow high son of liberty. A short time later, a British patrol intercepted all three men. Prescott and Dawes escaped. Revere was held for some time, questioned, and let go. Before he was released, however, his horse was confiscated to replace the tired mount of a British sergeant. Left alone on the road, Revere returned to Lexington on foot, time to witness the latter part of the battle on Lexington Green in which the historic shot heard round the world occurred. Regardless of being intercepted and detained, Revere had already helped give the colonial militia a key advantage by alerting them to the impending attack by the British. The battles of Lexington and Concord would spark the Revolutionary War. Paul Revere was a perfect example of an ordinary guy and an American patriot that put everything on the line to fight for liberty and freedom. He was a man of action. Without his contributions and courageous acts, things might have turned out very different. He died a wealthy man of natural causes at age 83 on May 10, 1818. His home, built in 1680, still stands today as the oldest building in downtown Boston. I'd like to conclude with a quote by Representative Eldridge Jerry of Massachusetts, spoken during a floor debate over the Second Amendment on August 17, 1789. Whenever governments mean to invade the rights and liberties of the people, they always attempt to destroy the militia, the militia not being a government-ran force, in order to raise an army upon their ruins.